Okay, how is everyone? Okay. Uh, Lauren, do we have any announcements? I can't hear you when you whisper. I can do that, yeah. Okay. Join our Facebook group if you haven't. Okay. And Neely. I'm not going to be here the 7th. I have a high school mountain bike banquet to go to. I'll be happy to, if someone wants to pass on to the Just let me know where you guys are coming for yourself. Guys, this is a big moment. Yeah. Okay. Um, did anybody go online and listen to any of the? Did you? Did it work? You got in okay? Okay. One of my staff members told me that this mic picks up a lot of things that like I didn't know it picked up. She's like, "FB, you called yourself fat, and you were like saying all these weird things." I'm like, "Oh, sorry." Okay, we're going to just start with an Our Father. If you're comfortable with that prayer, pray it with me. If you're not, that's okay. Um, but we'll just pray that tonight for our opening prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so to start off tonight, we have a quick saint story. Hopefully it'll be quick. Um, I want to tell you about the saint whose feast day is today. Generally, when we say a feast day, um, it's a day where we celebrate a particular saint in history. Usually, that day that we choose to celebrate them is the day they died. Not always, but usually. So today is the feast day of St. Ignatius of Antioch. Has anybody ever heard of him? There's some head nods. No one wants to raise their hand. I might call on him. <clears throat> so Ignatius of Antioch... We don't know for sure when he was born, but he died in the year 107 AD. And he's, he's a really powerful saint. As time passes and when we get um, a little later in class in RCIA, I'm going to give you some quotes from him from some of his writings because he'll be really important in some of the topics we'll discuss later on. Uh, here's a couple of things that are really cool about him. So he's from uh, Antioch. Does anybody know where Antioch is? Where is it? Yeah. Yeah, it's in, it's in Syria, modern-day Syria. And so Antioch is one of two ancient Christian. After Jesus dies, 
rises from the dead, ascends to heaven, there's two main kind of areas that became huge centers of Christian thought uh, and life. And one of them was Antioch. The other really big one, Rome became one, but was um, Alexandria in Egypt. But anyway, so Ignatius is really before that, though. Uh, and here's a couple of just amazing things about him. So Ignatius, uh, obviously a very, very early Christian, right? He dies in the year 107. So does anybody, let me ask this. Does anybody know, when was the Bible, when were like the last books of the Bible written? Yeah. Yeah, so somewhere around 90... 90 to 100, somewhere in there. When's, does anybody know when the first book of the Bible is written? Of the New Testament, not of the Old. When, yeah, that's pretty close. 37 AD is the first. And that's First Thessalonians. We'll get to all that when we talk about the Bible and how it got written, how it came into being, and how we figured all the, we'll talk a lot about the Bible. But anyway, so from 37 to about 100, somewhere in there, the, the later books of the Bible, of the New Testament, are the hardest ones to get an exact date on. But somewhere in there. So if you think about it, right, St. Ignatius of Antioch, most of his life is probably lived in that period. Not, not probably, it is lived in that period. So he's in the area where the New Testament's written. He, his mentor is a guy we like to call St. John the Apostle. And so Ignatius of Antioch, so St. John the Apostle wrote the fourth gospel. We call it the Gospel of John. He's the one who, he was a fisherman in Galilee who Jesus called. Is this board too far back? It's Okay. Uh, and he's the one, like, he was at the Transfiguration. He was at the Last Supper. He's one of the, uh, the two apostles that runs to the empty tomb, him and Peter. He's kind of a big deal. St. Ignatius of Antioch knew him personally. And isn't that crazy? Just an amazing thing. And what happens is we don't know too much about his life, but he becomes, St. Ignatius becomes the bishop of Antioch. So he's the bishop there, and I don't know, 106, somewhere in 106, 107, somewhere in there. He's arrested, and there's a large persecution of Christianity. And Ignatius is arrested. I have a look, like, imitation LaCroix, so I've got lots of, like, gas coming up. That sounds really bad. <laughs> but anyway, so Ignatius is arrested. He's taken to Rome, and he's going to be executed. And on his way, he wrote seven letters. And we have those letters today. I will bring them to class when some of those topics that he talks about come up. So he wrote seven letters. They're some of the earliest Christian writings that exist outside of the Bible. The, the two earliest documents we have from Christian writers that are not in the New Testament, one is called the Didache. It looks like Didache, but you pronounce it Didache. 
That's the Greek word for teaching. And then the, the, the other one that is the next earliest that's not in the Bible are the writings of St. Ignatius of Antioch. So he's arrested, he writes seven letters, and he writes them to different Christian communities, different churches. There we go. And what happens is he writes about all kinds of things that are going to be really important. And he's going to write about things that a lot of you are going to have questions about. But he's going to write about the hierarchy of the church. He's going to also, one of his biggest topics is, and probably his central topic is going to be the Eucharist, which will we'll bring Ignatius into class when we talk about the Eucharist. But anyway, so he writes seven letters. He's brought to Rome. And in the year 107, he was eaten by lions in the Colosseum. Uh, tremendous witness. And what he does is on his way, and this is the really powerful thing. For us, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. And I, I don't know, I imagine you're like me. It's like, did this really happen? Right? Ignatius, we don't know the year he was born, but he's born in the first century. Jesus dies around the year 30. And so Ignatius didn't know Jesus personally, but it was something right next to his lifetime. And he knew the people who knew Jesus personally. And Ignatius, when he writes to these communities, it's so powerful because what he's going to write about, it, and one of the things he says is he says, please don't try to save me because this is my one chance to give my life for Christ. And he begs the different Christian communities not to rescue him. Because he says, this is my chance to witness uh, to God and to witness to Christ and to show my love for him. By the way, does anybody know what the Greek word for witness is? That's right, it's martyr. I don't know why I put these on the board. But it's martyr. Martyr is the Greek word for witness. And if you think about that, right, this is, these are people who gave testimony, not just with something they said, but with their very life. Powerful thing. So today, today is the Feast of St. Ignatius of Antioch. We will meet him again as time passes. He was also, I'm going to move this up anyways because I don't believe you. He was also in touch with some other early saints that we'll talk about. He knew someone named Polycarp, who is the bishop of Smyrna. Uh, he's also connected to someone a little bit later, but there's someone named Irenaeus who's going to be very big on, on Ignatius. And Irenaeus will be one of the most prominent Christian voices in the third century. Okay, any questions about Ignatius of Antioch? No? Okay. Yeah, Steve. Mm -hmm. What happens on feast days? It's a quick story about that. One time, um, there was someone I knew who was like, who didn't normally drink, and we were at this party. This is before I was a priest. I still go to parties. You can do that as a priest. <laughs> But uh, one of my friends, she had a drink, and um, 
and someone said, why are you having a drink? And she said, oh, it's the feast of so-and-so. And, and this guy, I heard this guy, he thought no one could hear him, and he goes, Catholics always have an excuse to drink. Um, so a feast, a feast, literally, we're going to have times of fasting in the church, but a feast is a moment of celebration where we, re- we remember someone in our family, and essentially it's that we celebrate their entrance into heaven. And so it's a day of joy that God gives us. Um, what happens is like at Mass, like today I preached about St. Ignatius, people who have a real devotion to him, people who think that he, he's important in their lives, they'll do kind of special things on that feast day. It's kind of like a birthday for your family, you know? Um, but it makes the church not just a set of rules. It's one of those things that helps us. It's a life. It's a family. Uh, okay. Any other questions? Yeah, Katie. But. Mm-hmm. Yes. Revelation. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. Great question. And and come back at me if I don't answer this. Yeah. Christianity is an experience. It absolutely is an experience, but it isn't just an experience. Right? And and what's important about that is that there's something that's normative. Because the problem you have if you say it's just an experience, and this is something of what we talked about last week, is experiences are important, right? If to be a real like a real Christian, you can't just I'm gonna fight against the mentality that says Christianity is a set of beliefs that are checkboxes. Right? And I know I've already said you have to believe three things, but don't judge me, all right? Don't judge me. It's not just that, though. Those are, those are the, it's like bones and flesh. So the, the truths of Christianity are bones. But you need the flesh, right? And so there are certain Christians who just check the boxes. Believe that, so I'm a Christian. Those are necessary but insufficient. Those are, like, those are like skeletons without any flesh on them. You also meet some fleshy Christians who are all heart and feeling and they love God so much, but that you wonder if anything they say is true. So when we talk about revelation, what we say is that, and, and Christianity is an experience. It absolutely is, right? And, and the thing that we believe, right, is that this isn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's something that lives, that Jesus is risen from the dead, that he lives in his church, that he lives in in the lives of those who love him, and he lives in the sacraments. But, right, like when I was at my last parish, I had a woman who literally would tell me very regularly, she would would ask me if if I saw Jesus in her eyes, and you thought it was kind of like a Hallmark card, like, oh, isn't that sweet, like, yeah, I see. No, she's like, do you see Jesus in my eyes? And she was totally serious. I'm like, yeah, no. 
And she's, she was crazy, but she was. She grabbed one more story. She grabbed, she only spoke Spanish. She, she grabbed the microphone. I was out of town, and so was our other priest. And there was a visiting priest. And after a Sunday mass, she went up to the microphone, just grabbed it, and started lecturing the whole congregation in, in Spanish. And she was talking about how Jesus was coming back to marry her, and that anyone who didn't believe that was going to have some serious judgment going on. And the priest didn't speak Spanish, so he had no idea what she was talking about. And he thought this just happened at our church. He's like, she must be the announcement person in Spanish, you know? So that's extreme, and I don't mean, I don't want to make the extreme the norm, but here's my point. Public revelation is normative. So if someone says to me, Father Brian, and things like this happen, people will come to me and they'll say, Father Brian, Jesus came to me and he told me that you're no longer supposed to be celibate. No one's actually said that to me. That would be really bold. But, but someone could say that, right? Or they could say, Father Brian, Jesus appeared to me and he told me, I had this very powerful experience and he said, we're no longer supposed to have sacraments. Well, that contradicts what is normative, which is what God revealed, not how am I supposed to know if that's true, right? I, I, I'm, I tend to be a skeptic of those things. I do believe that God appears to people, but how am I supposed to know if it happened? How am I supposed to know? There's no way for me to know. And so the reason God one of the reasons God came in person and in a public way was that that truth was normative. It's for everyone. And I don't have to, and not to pick on um, the uh, Mormons, but I don't have to, but I do disagree with this. I don't have to believe Joseph Smith on his own word alone that he had a mystical vision that no one else can verify and all of us have to obey it because he had it. Right, Jesus' life was public, and it lives on in us. And there's a we're going to get a little bit into this now, but anyway, that it's something like that. Does that kind of make sense, Kitty? Yeah. There's nothing more personal than Christianity. It has to be personal, right? Christianity has to work. It has to bring together your head and your heart. Some of you in this room, you're more head people. I tend to be a little bit more that way. Some of you are more heart people. One of the reasons I'm a Catholic is because I've never seen anything on earth that brings the two together the way the Catholic Church does. Never seen it. One more story, and then we'll have our break because class is almost over. The, um, the first year here at Lourdes with RCIA, the first year I was here, we had a couple in RCIA. Did I tell you this story? Okay. <clears throat> they... Um, so they came, and he, she is all heart, like all heart. And the husband is all head, com- completely and totally. And this is, they, don't, they don't go here anymore just because they live too far away, but a wonderful couple. But they told me later on, after they became Catholic, they were these devout evangelicals, and they came into the church, and they told me a story. They, they had a fight at home at one point, and she wasn't there yet. She was like, I'm not sure I'm going to be Catholic. And then she turned to him in the kitchen and she said, honey, are you going to become Catholic? 
And he's, he's a head guy. And he had been convinced in his head. And so he said, yes, Protestantism is false. Catholicism is true. I'm becoming Catholic. And she looked at me and she goes, I get that. But what does your heart tell you? <laughs> and I just love that story. Because she's just like, what does that have to do with anything? It's about your heart, you know? So point being, my hope for this class is that it'll bring both of those things together. That's the reason, ultimately, I'm a priest. It's the reason that I'm a Catholic. Okay, so we, last week was kind of messy. So we're going to try and clean it up a little bit. We won't do it 100%, but we're going to try a little bit. So let's do a very surface level thing first. And then we're going to go a step deeper, okay? So C.S. Lewis says this about Jesus. Some of you have probably heard this. He says there are three things you can believe about Jesus. Um, and so the way that C.S. Lewis breaks this down, um, is that Jesus very clearly in the Gospels, very clearly over and over repeatedly, all the time, claims to be God. Very strongly, very clearly. And so C.S. Lewis says, <clears throat> the first question someone should ask about Jesus is, is he God? Okay, well, if the answer is yes, then the equation kind of ends and you say, okay, he's God. But if you answer that and you say no, there's a second question. And the second question would be this, and this is about what can you really believe that is true about Jesus Christ? So this, with the second question is, does he know he's not God? So if he's not God, does he know that? And so this no breaks into two other answers you can have. Does he know he's God, he's, that he's not God? If he does not know, then he's a lunatic. If the answer is yes, that he does know he's not God, then he's a liar. And this one means he's Lord. So let's just pause a second. Lewis was writing in a, for a particular reason about this. And his point is this, is that if, what, what a lot of people want to say about Jesus today is they want to say he was a good teacher. Has anyone ever heard that? Yeah, I have too. I mean, and I get it. I think, I think there's something in us that we recognize his goodness. But what Lewis shows is that this is really the, one of the only things you really can't say about Jesus. And here's why. Like, so in John chapter 7, Jesus tells people that he is the only being that can save you from your sins. Or John 14, 6. 
John 14, 6 is a famous line. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the, and the life. Now imagine if one, one of us in this class said that. Right? Imagine if Lauren came up and I'm like, Lauren, are there any announcements? She's like, yeah. I just want you guys to know that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Right? I don't know what we would do, but I don't know. I, I don't have anything good. I wish I had a good line for that. But Jesus claims that, and he says things like that left and right. And Lewis's point is that if he's not God, and he thinks he's God, he's crazy. You ever met someone who thinks they're God? I actually haven't. I have met people who think God is in their eyeball. Right? I have met people like that. Right? I have met, like, the Catholic Church, priests, they never tell you this in seminary, priests attract crazy people to themselves. And, like, God bless them. You have to be patient and love them and, and et cetera, et cetera. I had a guy, I have so many crazy stories. One of my favorites, there's a guy, they're all from my last parish, really. Some of you guys got to go crazy, so I have good stories for my next parish. But I, I, like I have one guy who was convinced the FBI was following him at all times. And we always joke that we're going to get to heaven and find out he was telling the truth. We're going to be like, oh my gosh, sorry, Lord. But this guy, he, like, we got so fed up with it because he would just stop me every single day and tell me about the director of the FBI who was corrupt and who was waterboarding him and blah, 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 blah. And at my, the end of the time in my last parish, he came into my office unannounced. He just barged in and he started going into the whole thing about how the FBI was after him. And I, I finally said, I was like, his name's John. I was like, John, I think the time's come. And he's like, what do you mean? And I was like, you have to go to the press. You have to go to the press. Because he would always ask me if he should. He's like, he's like, Father Brian, I think I need to go to the press. And I was like, John, they're just not listening. It's time to go to the press. <laughs> I'm going to be in purgatory a long time. But here's it. But right, if Jesus claims he's God and he's not, but he thinks he is, that's a crazy person. And people love the parts of the gospel where Jesus is merciful and loving and kind and teaches great things. Everyone loves that. People don't love the parts of the Bible where he says that unless you are obedient to him, you'll die in your sins. He says that. I don't say things like that, right? Okay, so you get the point. I go on and on. If Jesus is not God, but he really authentically, oh, that's the lunatic. Um, did I get that backwards? Okay, so wait, he's, does he know? No, he doesn't. Gotcha. Okay. So then the other one is, he's not God and he knows he's not God. He is the greatest, and here's what Lewis says, he is the greatest liar in all of history. Right? Because his lies, if that's, if that's really what happened, then his lies changed all of world history and hundreds of millions, if not billions of people have lived their life based on someone who is a liar. Pretty crazy. Doesn't prove it, but 
It's an interesting logical breakdown. And again, Lewis's point is that this doesn't really work. Question. I think so, but I, it's been a while since I've read that, so I forget the exact source. Does anybody know where that's out of? It's a very famous teaching. It's mere Christianity? Okay. Yeah, Steve. They did. And we're gonna, that's, a, that's a really good segue to our next thing. They, and really the Hebrew word is rabbi, which means teacher. And some of the gospels tell you that they're saying rabbi, and they'll say, which means teacher. And some just say teacher or rabbi. But yeah. And, and we'll, I'll get to that in just a second. I don't think that's why, actually. Because that, they don't, they don't think he was a good teacher because of that. The reasons have much more to do with the way Western civilization has gone in the last three centuries. Um, a lot of, especially like 19th century thinkers, they wanted to embrace Christian teaching on morality, but they didn't want to be Christians. And that's really where that comes from. Okay, any more questions? How are we doing on time? All right, let's take a, that's a good break point. Let's take a four-minute break. We'll come back at 10 after. Meet someone you haven't met yet in the break. Okay, everybody, we about ready to start back up. So this, here's, we're going to try and do this quickly. One of the things I want to say, and we'll get to this, is that the second question that broadly outlines our CIA, is Jesus God? We're going to be answering that the entirety of the time. And, and I, I want to show you something at the end of this little section that I think will help with that. So I'll just leave it there. So here we go. So how do you know Jesus is God? Is there a way of knowing? And here's the way we, we tend to think of this. So when we know things, right, there, we, there's a subject and an object. So you are a subject, right? And yourself, but let's just stick, we'll use me for the example. So, right, I am a subject, and if I, like, when I look at the podium, that's the object that I'm looking at, right? And so, we, want, we, we tend to think of, when we think of Jesus, what we tend to think of is, why, when we look at Jesus, and so when I look at you, you become the object that I am looking at, right? So if I look at one of you, let's say Deacon Daryl, if I look at Deacon Daryl, he becomes the object of my sight. And what we tend to think with Jesus, if we're thinking about him and we're looking at him, we tend to think it's really hard to see the object. Right, what we want to say is, why can't, we think something's wrong with the object. Why doesn't the object 
make it more obvious that he's God. Does that make sense? The other way to say this is if Jesus is God, why doesn't he just tell me so? Have you ever wondered that? Yeah, it's a good, I have two. The other one people always want to know too is their vocation, which is like, you know, if you're going to be married or a priest or a sister or whatever. <clears throat> people will come to me and they're like, and usually they all, they're all like, I'll do whatever God wants as long as it's the guy in the third pew and he's my husband, right? But we all want God to write us this letter. And what we do is we assume the problem is on this end. And here's what faith says. And we're going to break this down. What if the problem isn't over there, but it's actually on this side? We can think of this on the physical level, right? If someone has a problem with their vision, or even in um, academics, if someone has something where their mind isn't working properly, right? Maybe you've gone to a class and someone's teaching, let's say, astrophysics. And in astrophysics, you don't doubt that it's true. You just say, I just don't know if I'm smart enough to understand. Does that make sense? Here's what I want to propose to you. Faith is a way of seeing things but it's not like other things in life. You cannot see this object by your own powers. Okay, so let me try to open this up. I think I've made this point when we talked just about God, but the same is true about Jesus. What, what the great thinkers of Christianity, and more importantly, the saints, what the saints all tend to say is they say that Christianity is not something for smart people alone. And so what we tend to do when we say we come to a class like this and I do it too, is we tend to say, we tend to use something, and one more, two more Latin words here. In Latin, there are these two words that the saints make a big distinction between. One is ratio, and the other is intellectus. Now, both of those words are words we use for understanding things. So this is where we get the word reason. Rationality is from ratio in Latin. Intellectus, right? The intellect, right? Your mind. Here's what we want to use with God is we want to use the ratio. And here's what ratio is. Ratio is thinking really hard and saying A plus B minus C equals D. And what, you, what people want me to do in RCIA is they want me to say, look, Big Bang plus resurrection minus everyone else is totally lame equals Jesus is God. Right? Well, I can't even write God. Okay, there we go. It does not work that way. 
And here's why I can't, by the way, I can't contradict this. This also has to line up. But ultimately, this will never, ever get you to God. And here's why. You're trying to use something that you have to understand something much infinitely greater than you. And so when we use rationality, and, and again, this is a tricky thing, so hear this right, the church does not deny rationality. It's necessary but insufficient. So if, if we can't contradict what rationality says, but it's not what's going to get you there. Intellectus is what it is. And intellectus is much more like something that's like an insight. And maybe a better way of, of saying it is just to say, insight is seen. Yeah. Sure. Right. Right, totally. Right. 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 We're going to talk about this a lot when we get to the church, but it's a hugely important question. And, and maybe for now, because I want to think about what you're asking, because it's, I love it. What, what the church wants to say, right, is that that is a problem. And actually, it's hugely relevant to where we're going with this, Neely. Is it human, there is human bias with every one of us. I always love when the media says, unbiased reporting. I'm like, how is that possible? It's, it's not possible. Every one of us has a bias. Every single, I, I respect it much more when someone comes out and says, here's my bias. Here's my angle. In fact, I like that word better because bias has like a connotation for us that sounds like it's mean-spirited. We just all, the way one of my favorite theologians says it is if, you all, if we all look at this basketball hoop, we're all seeing the, the same object, but we all sit in a different angle to it. And to pretend, and when people say I have no bias, usually what they're saying is, I don't have an angle. I'm not sitting in a particular place. The hell you're not, right? Of course you are. So, but what, what Aquinas would say 
is that's why there had to be something objective that broke into the subjective realm. Yes. Good. Here's where we're going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so how do we, but how do we know? And that's, that's the question we're asking. Part of that answer is going to be the church. And just to give one preview ahead of where we're going, is that what we usually think is that Jesus is someone who lived 2,000 years ago. But his teaching, actually, is that he lives right now. And the way he lives is in his saints. And so that it's not, it's not 100% the same, and we'll make that distinction when we get there. But people, right, when people encountered Mother Teresa in the streets of Calcutta, they would literally say, I met God because he lives inside of Mother Teresa. And we'll get to that. But that's, that's one of the problems we get to is how can something that happened 2,000 years ago be binding on my life today? Okay, we'll get there, I promise. Okay, so what, what the church tends to say is not that you figured something out. I did a math equation and the answer was God. That's not faith. Faith is that I saw something and I just saw it and nothing will convince me otherwise. So I know this is, this is new for everybody, so we're going to break this out some more. So here's, G.K. Chesterton has a great analogy for this. <clears throat> he says this. He says, imagine that you're in the jungle. And you've never been to the jungle before. And you're a little nervous, right? <clears throat> they don't have, you know, your 18 pillows you have in your bed here. And you're in the middle of the jungle, and you're, 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 yeah, you're nervous, you're kind of scared. <clears throat> and he says, someone in that situation, the first time they hear a hyena, it's possible that they could mistake that for a lion. Right? If you're nervous, you're scared, you're in the jungle, you hear a hyena, you might think, oh my gosh, that was a lion. But he says, but when they actually hear a lion roar, you know it through and through to the depths of your being. There's no mistaking it once you've heard the real thing. So what the church has always said, and this is deep stuff. We're gonna, if, if tonight's a little like, you're like, wow, I need to think about this. Rest assured that you're in a good place. But think of it this way. Have you ever seen, like if you saw something that was so incredibly beautiful, you saw the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your life, and someone says, wow, prove to me that that was beautiful. They want to use ratio for something that can only be understood by intellectus. And all I can do, and we'll talk about this more and more with time, if you want, if, for those of you who are philosophy people, this is a, a term we use for things like this sometimes, is first principles. In philosophy, there's certain first principles that you can't prove because there's nothing beyond them. They're the, they're the bottom level. 
they prove everything else. Like one first principle is that something cannot be true and false at the same time in the same way. Right? I can't say that um, this board is flat and it's spherical at the same time in the same way. It's called the principle of non-contradiction. <clears throat> I can't prove that to you. If you want to argue with me that this board can be flat and spherical at the same time in the same way, in the same regard, the conversation's over. Right? I can't, I, there's nothing else I can do to prove that to you. Now hang with me. I know this is deep stuff. Hang with me. Here's what the saints say and here's what Christianity says. The vision of Christ when we actually see him is, a, is like a first principle, but even more. Nothing else outside of it can justify it. It's so perfect. It's so beautiful. He is so perfect, so beautiful, so beyond everything else that if, if someone doesn't see that, you can't prove it from ratio. You can show it doesn't contradict. And I'm going to give you a bunch of reasons. That's kind of what we did last time is I can give you a bunch of this. And I can show you, oh my gosh, look what happened in the first century in Israel. Nothing can explain it. There is nothing like it in the history of the world. I can show you that Western civilization and all of the values that you and I hold as obvious and everything that makes the world true, all of that goes all the way back to a Christian Jewish worldview and specifically to Christian. And, the, and at the end of the day, all those things are amazing. They build this incredible argument, but they cannot make you have faith. The only thing that can have, make you have faith is when you just see it. It's, it's, and, and let me say one more thing, and then I, we're going to do one more thing that's going to help with this. I think. <laughs> one more thing that's going to help with this is that, is the next thing, but what was I going to say first? Let's just leave it there. That's where I'm going to, but there was one, I had one brain freeze in there. Okay. Here's what the scriptures teach. Yeah, question. Right. No, he's talking to the, he can't, right? That would be odd. If Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is he schizophrenic? Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> no. He's referring to the Father, and we'll get to that. That's the Trinity. Right? Um, and we will get to that. Um, but I have to punt on that, yeah. But, it's, but Jesus is not abandoning himself, no. Sure. Twenty-two. Twenty-two. That the very mm -hmm. thing that Jesus taught. Yep. That um, the theory is that Jesus was on the cross and he started reciting that psalm. Because that psalm is probably the very foundation. Because if you actually read the entire psalm, it goes on to
with somebody crying out, why did you forsake me? And then the second part of it that never gets referred to is, I didn't forsake you. Right. I never left you. It's just that thing where it's, uh, I was carrying you, or you know, you were walking in Jesse Richards and now like down to the footprints, and I was carrying you. It's something similar to that. Right. And it's really cool. It's a cool psalm. But if they say it's Jesus was on the cross actually reciting that psalm in a loud that everybody picked it up, that he was going through it. And yep. No, and that's right. And I 100% agree with that. We're actually going to probably talk about that later on. And I'll show you Psalm 22. But, but let's punt on that. Any last questions? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. You can't, yes, great question. Can you help someone? Since, since it's seen, can you help someone to see? You can lead them there, otherwise we couldn't have this class, right? You can help with it, but you cannot force it. And the reason, right, and this is, this is the point. Here's why God does it. Faith is not intelligence. God does not want people to follow him just because they're smart. He wants he does want your mind. Your mind absolutely matters, but he wants your heart. And you're leading me perfectly where we're going next, but there was one more question. Who else had one over here? Yeah. Mm -hmm. In all of us, there's, a, there's degrees. Just not your eyeballs. Yeah. No, but, th but there is. And actually, like the saints, this is why the saints convert people. It's because seeing is believing, right? You know that phrase? Think about that. We all have tendencies to be cynical. I tend, right, after Mass is on Sundays, I can have 200 people that said, Father Brian, that was the best homily I've heard in a long time. If one person said it sucked, guess what I'm going to dwell on for the next week? And I do, and I'll dwell on that, and we all are that way. And so there's something, what we pretend, and this is perfect, you guys are leading me well, so let's get to this because I'm worried we're going to not get there, and I think I can say it well tonight. I hope so. Um, we all pretend whenever you have an argument about anything and just about the way you go through life, here's what I pretend and here's what you pretend. If you have to make a decision, like let's say where, how you're going to vote in November, what you pretend to do and what I pretend to do is we say, you know, I don't have to write it. We say, I am, you know, I looked at all the evidence. I was totally neutral I stood outside, I didn't have any ingoing opinions, and I just looked at different candidates' positions on different things, did my research, and I made a cool, calm decision, which is objectively true. Bullshit. Right? No, you didn't. No one does that. We all pretend that. We all pretend that we are these neutral, objective observers. No, we're not. No one is. You have a heart and a soul. And here's, here's where we're going with this, is that, yes, God wants your mind. He wants your heart. He wants your soul. He wants your everything. And, and this, I'm so glad I just thought of this line. What we pretend like in the modern world is we pretend like, hey, God, if you're out there, prove it to me. 
And Pope Benedict has this stunning line where he says, if we have that attitude, we deceive ourselves because we pretend that we can come to the truth on something other than our knees. I love that line. We deceive ourselves if we think we can come to the truth on anything else but our knees. And this is the point I want to make about faith. This doesn't prove it, but it's an appeal to your heart and your mind as well. There are some truths that you can just be smart and you can really get to, right? Like you can be a total jerk and you can be a financial expert, right? Um, some people joke about right, like lawyers, right? You have to be a jerk to be an expert in law. I'm just kidding. <clears throat> For most, a lot of things in life, that's true. There are certain things in life where your mind is not enough. It's necessary, but it's not enough. And if, if there is a God... And what the the God that Christians believe in is a God who we believe manifested himself as love itself. That he demands that you approach him not just with your mind turned on, but with your heart. Okay, so here we go. So Jesus, this is so cool. So one more story. C.S. Lewis so we've talked about him a, a couple times already in class. C.S. Lewis, some of you know him from your childhood, right? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And you're like, oh, I just wish I could go back. He's also one of the most articulate Christian defenders of the 20th century. And C.S. Lewis, if you don't know this, he was an atheist. And he was an atheist all the way to the time he became a professor at Oxford. Right? So again, not an unintelligent person. Doesn't mean he's right, but not unintelligent. And he be, I love this. His, you know who his best friend was? That's right. Tolkien. J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings. And kind of a cool story, J.R.R. Tolkien, devout Catholic. His um, father died when he was very young. I might butcher this. I think this is right, though. And his mother, because I don't think she could handle everything, Tolkien was raised by priests, which is a really scary thought. But Tolkien and C.S. Lewis became very good friends. In fact, they became best friends. And Lewis, when he talks about his conversion to becoming a Christian, he was doing it all with ratio. And he has this great line where he says, I never understood when Christians talked about growing in faith. I never understood that. He said, and it's because it was all ratio. It's like an equation. One plus three plus five, right? Figure it out. And, so in, and, if, and, if it's, and if you figure out the answer, it's either true or false. And so either Jesus is God or he's not. And so when Christians say, I, I'm really growing in my faith, he didn't understand. And he talks about that. And here's what he says. So we talked about that subject-object thing that you, if you're going to find God, if you're going to see him, You have to get on your knees. And C.S. Lewis says that when he found God, and I love the way he says this, he says, it wasn't really me who found God. It was God who found me. And he says, I wasn't looking for him. He said, I had no interest in becoming a Christian. None. Zero whatsoever. 
wasn't looking, wasn't even asking the question about whether or not God existed. But he says in his autobiography, he says, um, surprised by joy, he says it is highly significant that when he became a Christian, it was the first time in a long time in his life that he had intentionally decided to live a more moral life. And he talks about how that made all the difference. So think about this, right? We all have examples of people we've known where they just can't see something. And it's not because they're not smart enough. It's because they either don't want to see it or something's blocking it. Usually this is in a a realm of relationship. By the way, Christianity has bones, which are the truths, which we can think deeply about, we can apply our reason to, but it has flesh. Christianity has a heart. And the bones exist for the heart. And if you're going to engage in a relationship with God, which is what Christianity really is, to go back to our earlier question, it's going to require these as well. Okay, so here we go. Have I said that like six times? I think I did. In John's gospel, so a gospel, I think we mentioned this in one of the other classes, a gospel is one of the, we have, there's four of them in Christianity and they're in the Bible, they're books. And they're the four books that tell the story of the life of Christ. And the word gospel means good news. We'll get to that with time. So in John's gospel, there are 21 chapters, okay? And when you study John's gospel, there's this, there's this division that splits the book basically right in half. And scripture scholars, <clears throat> they have names for the two halves of John's gospel. The first gospel they call the book of signs, By the way, this, I, did not, I have studied Christianity for over 20 years intensely, and I hate all of you because I'm giving you my best insights that I came to after years and years of research. So yeah, I'm officially judging you in my heart. But in the, the book of signs, signs, the word we would use is miracle. That's not the word John uses. John uses the word simeon in Greek, sign. And in the book of signs, Jesus performs six signs. And so people usually don't follow this too closely because we, don't, you know, we, we haven't been trained to. But the first one is at the wedding feast in Cana in John chapter 2. So at the wedding feast in Cana, Jesus turns water into wine. And so he does that, and then in, in John 2.11, it says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And what John's going to do in his gospel is he's going to, every time that Jesus does this, he's going to point it out, and he's going to highlight, he's going to say, this sign he performed while they were outside Capernaum. And there's six of them. 
which is very interesting. And the, the book of signs ends, it goes from, uh, let's do red. The book of signs goes from chapter 1 to the end of chapter 12. In chapter 12, there's this summary and says this. It says, when Jesus had said this, this is verse uh, 36, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, yet they did not believe in him. It was thus that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And he goes on, we won't go too deep into that, it's important, but we'll be here forever. So here's my point. At the end, what we all want is we want Jesus to perform a miracle in front of us. Here's the thing. It doesn't work. Miracles are not the reason you don't believe in God or that people don't believe in Jesus. That's not why. It's because they haven't seen the... If you don't see the form, if you don't see with the eyes of faith, who he is, right, then no amount of miracles can, can convert you. The second book, let's go back to black. The second book, wow, that marker's on there, cap. It's called the Book of Glory. And the whole point there and what's going to happen is, and this, the book of glory runs from chapter 13. It really only goes to 19. The, the last two chapters are kind of a 20 and 21 are kind of a, the resurrection stories. I can't spell resurrection. Whatever, you get the point. It's the res. Don't laugh at me. But here, and here's the whole point. There's a lot of Old Testament background to this. But here's the point is that the problem wasn't in the object, which is Jesus. The problem was in us. And the point that the, uh, the, the world comes to believe in Christ is not because he demonstrates everything and lays out the argument before them, it's when on the cross, people's hearts are pierced. Now, and the Bible's contention is this, and this is the Christian contention, is that the thing that keeps us from seeing God is not our minds. It's not, the, it's not a lack of evidence. It's, our, it's actually that there's something wrong with our hearts. And so God, there's this famous line that's all over scripture and it says this, it says, God resists the proud, but he raises up the lowly. He resists the proud, but he raises up the lowly. So 
how do you come? How do you get there? You might be sitting here going, okay, Father Brian, this is interesting, but how do I, how do I get to this? How do I see? I can't, I can help. But the only way you'll get there is if you decide to take a chance. And I know you have your here. But you've got to open your heart. And here's what the saints say, right? How do you, how do you know something's beautiful? Right? One of my college roommates, I came back one time from, I, was, I went to see you. And I went up to the flat irons and it was, it was stunning and something touched my heart and my soul. And I came back and I remember I went to my apartment in, in Boulder and I had this roommate who was really cynical. And I said to him, I said, you know, I, oh my gosh, it was the most beautiful sunset. I just feel like a new human being. And he literally started to ridicule me. And he was like, why do you think rocks are pretty? He's like, I got a bunch of rocks in the backyard. You want to go in the backyard and look at a bunch of rocks? Now, that's extreme. But do you see the point? You can't tell someone why something's beautiful. And what the saints, right, what the saints say is that when you come to faith, it's not a moment where you added up the equation. It's a moment where you looked at the cross and you saw that this is the meaning of all life. So Balthazar says it this way. Balthazar says, He says, when a human being, when a man looks at a cross, he knows for the first time in his life, when he really sees it, he knows for the first time in his life that he does not know what love is. And so all I can really do is, as we go through class, brothers and sisters, we'll talk about this more. As we go through class, I'm going to give you more ratio right? Rationality. I'm going to give you a ton. If you like rationality, it's going to be coming out of your ears in this class. But if you, when I was in, and let me tell you one more story about me, just to be a little narcissistic. I thought, again, I thought this was going to be the first half of class. I'm optimistic. One more story about me. This doesn't prove it, but again, God wants your mind, but he wants your heart. When I was a senior in high school, I started doubting my faith. Didn't know anything about it. I was just raised in it. And I was like, is any of this true? And you know, you, you kind of, when you start hitting those teenage years, you start thinking a little more like an adult. You're not there yet, but you start. And I remember sitting in the back of my church and there was something about this man on a cross And I didn't know what it was. But I knew I was missing something. That was the beginning of my conversion. I I was so bored at Mass, I would just zone out of all the homilies. That never happens here. But (laughs) I would totally zone out. But I was this this 17-year-old kid, and I would sit in the back of church, and there's this giant crucifix at my home parish. And I would just stare... And at this man who is on this cross, and as the Bible teaches, and as the New Testament and the church teach us, there's this man suffering, 
because he loves me. And I didn't, I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't know how to explain that. But it's something inside of me, right? Like it, when, when you know something, when you have the subject-object thing, right? Here's me. I'm happy most of the time. What the heck? Smiley face. I'm happy most of the time. I'm looking at an object. How do I know it's true? And traditionally what we would say is that whatever is here matches what's in the image of my mind, that they correspond. The reality is mirrored in my mind. Correspondence, they correspond. There's something like that in faith where all of it comes together. And for me, right, when the object became the cross and Jesus himself, and it's not just the cross, it's Jesus is the real point. But when I saw Jesus and when I felt like I saw him for the first time, this course, there, there's something inside of me. And at the start, it wasn't up here. At the start, at the start of me, it was just something in the core of my soul that just resonated with that. It was a moment of, of intellectus. And this is why, by the way, this is why the greatest intellects in Western civilization, many of them have been Catholics, greatest thinkers in Western civilization. Not all of them, but many of them. And my grandmother. And isn't that beautiful? And my grandmother knew this. She couldn't get up here and teach this class but she knew it to the core of her soul that this was true. Okay, so faith, let's just try to wrap this up. Faith is not an exercise in logic. It cannot contradict logic. All right, I'm going to show you as time passes, like one of the things that reinforces my faith is that it's confirmed time and time again. When I was in college, right, I had that moving, moving experience of the cross. But then I was like, Catholicism is crazy. I was like, it's crazy. I was like, yes, that piece of bread is the flesh of Christ, and priests have to wear black, and they can't marry. And Mary is like the mother of God, and somehow we're not worshiping her. And blah, 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 on and on and on and on. And what happened was I started challenging all of those teachings which is what we're going to do in RCIA, all of them. And one by one, I became convinced. One by one. And I was like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. It made a lot of sense. And bit by bit, what happened, nothing can replace that act of sight. We say, Jesus is alive. This, this is what God looks like. It's a breaking into the world. It isn't just truth, but it's also love. It's not just uh, history and intellectual things. It's life from the dead. And everything inside of me screams for that. And it's also living today in the saints. But anyway, on and on. But then all these teachings, and we're going to get to all this They just made sense. And it's what G.K. Chesterton says. G.K. Chesterton says when you look at Catholicism, it's like a really gnarly key. And you look at this key and you're like, that's such a weird key. 
And Chesterton's point is like, you can debate all day if it looks weird or not. The whole point is stick it in the keyhole and see if it opens the door. And he says, once you do, everything comes together. That's going to be the exercise we'll go through. So um, we're done for tonight. I hope this gave you a lot to think about. Well, shoot, we've got seven minutes. Can I do one last thing? Gosh, I'm sorry, but not really. I, isn't this awesome? I love this stuff. What else are you going to do? Yeah. So you might have already answered that. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, what I would say is that, so Catholics versus Protestants, does that have to do with ratio or intellectus? Everything has to be rooted in Christ. Everything must go back to him. If, if in Catholicism it doesn't find its origin in him, and it's not tied to him, then it's superfluous, and it's probably better it's cut off. But what we believe is that the part of the intellectus, seeing him, that part of that is the church. And the church, is, the church flows from Christ. And we'll get to that when we talk about the church. Okay, last thing, we've already done it once in class. Um, but... Just briefly to say this again, here's, here's what I want to invite you to during class. The first, remember what the first name for Christianity was? The way, right? The Greek word is hodos, which is kind of fun. You can go impress everyone at work tomorrow. <clears throat> and, and so when Jesus, right, when Jesus presents the apostles, when the, the story of Christianity is not a story of ratio, right? Jesus did not walk up to the apostles, hand them each a scroll, right? They didn't have books, scrolls. And he's like, here, take this scroll. Here's 18 points about why I'm God. If you agree, you will be an apostle, right? No, he didn't do that. Here's what he did is he said, come follow me. And, and, and the idea is, I know you've got a million questions. I know you've got a million I, like, doubts and things you're wondering about. We're going to get to those, but, but come with me. You can't be a Christian from the sideline is my point. You can't do it. It's, it, is, it is impossible. If you stay on the sidelines, you'll never be a Christian. Because, it, because what you do is you judge it from the sidelines and what Jesus says is, he, you know, they walk from Galilee to Jerusalem. And that road is called the way. And that's what Christianity is. And here's the thing. If you get on the way, it doesn't mean you're not going to get off. But you'll never know if you don't. You'll never know if you don't. And if... Next week, I'll try to bring it. Pope Benedict has a phenomenal quotation about this. Again, Pope Benedict, one of the top theologians in the last hundred years. Brilliant, brilliant man. You would think a brilliant, like, German professor that he would say, oh, it's, I can't do it in an invitation. To be, a, to be a Christian, you know what it means? Oh, you must study the catechism and study these documents and this and this. And he has a great quote. He says, no, 
No, you'll never, ever be a Christian that way. He says, you have to walk. And the apostles, when they start, right, they don't know that Jesus is God. When they're up here and Jesus says, hey, you, come follow me, they don't know that. They don't know he's God. They didn't say, oh my goodness, it's the second person of the Trinity. He scored. Right? They didn't do that. They had no idea. They thought he was a rabbi, a teacher, but there was something in him that was enough that they said, I'll take a chance. So that's my invitation. And I really invite you between now and next week, take a look inside yourself. And I would really challenge you make a prayer to God. Be honest and say, God, I don't know. I'm a creature. I don't know all things. I am not God. But if you're real, and, even if, and if you're real, and, and if it demands for me to follow you, if it demands that I let go of some things that I don't want to, I'll take a chance. If you don't do that this week, that's okay, but you'll never be a Christian if you don't do that. Okay. Mic drop. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we love you. Jesus, I thank you tonight. I thank you for everyone who's here. I thank you that they have taken a step to come to RCIA. Jesus, I want to take another step. Lord, I want to let go of myself. I want to stop pretending that I'm the center of everything because I want to have a deeper faith. Lord, I ask you to work in the hearts and the minds of those here. I ask you to draw them closer to you. Lord, to walk with them on this journey. Lord, to fill us with wisdom, with insight, with humility and faith. And Lord, bless everyone this week. Bless their families. Bless their jobs. Uh, fill them with joy and peace. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week.